Well, the first thing I need to tell you all is that I am not Ben Johnson. (laughs) That may be a surprise to you, but we had hoped to have Ben with us. He's the executive director of, um, I think it's the American Immigration Council, um, to speak with us about a a wonderful topic uh, around immigration and how we create an us in this, um, in this country instead of a them, letting go of the them. And unfortunately, he was called away. And so we did a little bit of shifting and scrambling. And uh, here I am um, talking with you about what I was going to talk about next week. Uh, as it happens, next week, I, I was grousing about this a little bit on, um, on a Facebook group that I'm part of with other clergy and talking about how he's going to have to work speak five Sundays in a row, by the end of which I surely would have nothing left to say to any of you. And, um, and, and I want to say it was Ben had a death in the family, and so our condolences are, are very much with him. But there you are with five Sundays in a row. And someone um, told me that this incredible activist was going to be in town next Sunday and was looking for a last-minute preaching gig. And so he is going to come and speak to us next Sunday. We'll have Chris Crass here, which is quite exciting, actually. He's from Nashville, Tennessee, and just has done incredible work for quite some time. So uh, that is a Sunday you will not want to miss. In fact, you will likely want to invite your friends to it. It should be really phenomenal. Um, And hopefully then I will uh, still have something to say after five weeks. So But this Sunday, I'm talking about what it means to lose your religion. The title of the platform is actually Losing My Religion, which is a song, right? What is it, R.E.M., right? Yeah, and I looked it up. Um, I'm not that that like with it with music really. Um, so I looked up the lyrics to see if I should suggest them to Bailey as a song, but it doesn't really have anything to do with losing your religion, as really as it turns out. So there's there's no quotes from that song. Um, but I would like to think with you all a little bit about what it means to lose one's religion, and whether it's necessary to find something here? That's sort of the central question for me. Many years ago, I read a book. You might have read it yourself. We actually have a copy in our library at West. It's called Finding Your Religion. It's by Scotty McLennan, um, who is the the minister, the the basis for the minister in the um, Doonesbury cartoons, you know, um, because he went to college with Gary Trudeau. Um, so they knew each other from way back, and then Scotty became a, a minister, and Gary became a cartoonist. And um, So he wrote this great book. He was a chaplain for many, many years at Tufts University, and he wrote a book based on his experience of working with college students who are, of course, in so many ways in a place of evolution or rebellion or wondering and thinking about what is real for them, what they want in their lives moving forward. And he wrote this book about the experience of finding that the religion, actually the subtitle is um, When the Faith You Grew Up With Has Lost Its Meaning. So it's about that experience of losing one's religion and then figuring out what comes next. And I loved this book. I, I read it a couple of times, actually, as a um, as a youth, which is ironic because I was at the time preparing to go to seminary essentially in the religion that I had grown up in. So it was a completely foreign experience to me, the idea of losing one's religion. We'll talk about that with a little bit more nuance later, my own personal journey. But I was interested in what that felt like to lose one's faith or one's community 
and to figure out what should happen next. Many of you, of course, know exactly what that feels like. Although, (laughs) the exactly would be different, I suspect, for every single person here. Some of you I know because you have shared with me over the years, come having lost your faith in a traumatic way, with grief or an experience of pain. Some of you come having had a wonderful religious experience in your youth and simply realized at one point that it wasn't exactly right for you anymore, and so you came because you wanted to have something like that again. It makes leading a community like this somewhat difficult, as you could imagine, since each of us have our own experiences with religious language and religious ritual. Some of us come here wanting to find exactly that ritual and that music that we loved so much, but with different words. And some of us come here hoping that nobody ever has that ritual or music that we found so hard here Or each of us has the own particular word, you've heard me say this before, that we don't want to have said here because it will be hard for us. Unfortunately, there's very little overlap on those words, I'm here to tell you. (laughs) And so what's right for one isn't right for another. It's one of the most personal ways that we differ here, I think, in the language that we love or the music that we love, the poetry or readings or even the sacred texts that might connect for us. Even sometimes what language you people use to describe this place, we run into that. People will say congregation or spiritual community. Uh, some folks will say, well, this is my church, if that sort of makes sense. And, and that's what they say to people outside because it's the easiest to explain. Other folks will say, this is my unchurch. I think that's kind of cute, frankly. All sorts of things. Every once in a while, people will say, well, what am I supposed to call you <laughs> to me? Whatever you want is usually the answer. There's plenty of fine words. Hopefully they're nice words. Now I'm, now I'm thinking I've just opened myself up to something unfortunate. <laughs> Part of what Wes does, I think, in a lot of ways, is help people to recover or heal from what they've lost. And I mean that not just when the losing was traumatic, because sometimes that's true, but often not. Sometimes, sometimes the losing was gradual and perhaps sad. An experience of loss over many years, something not fitting quite right, even when we wish that it would. When we wish that it could still work for us. And I think that kind of healing That kind of moving forward after loss is best done in community, surrounded by people who care about us, who can listen to our stories as we tell them and as we learn them ourselves. Because so often, I think, we come to that letting go with mixed feelings, There's a great quote, I don't know to whom it should be attributed, I'm not sure anyone does. Everything I've ever let go of has claw marks on it. (laughs) 
claw marks from hanging on to that branch, like the little yellow leaf, not quite ready. And I think that's so true for some of us as we think about our religious backgrounds or even our secular backgrounds. Of course, more and more folks come to us having been raised with no particular religious tradition. What they're letting go of is that lack of a community, of a tradition in their lives. Letting go, perhaps, of the New York Times on Sunday morning, although I do think you have time to fit it in before you get here at 11. Letting go, though, of brunch. Boy, that's a loss for me, I'll tell you. I've heard folks talk about letting go of their religion with a sense of nostalgia in their voices and in their hearts with a sense still of deep connection. And then, of course, others who talk about it with a sense of relief. (laughs) I don't want that anymore in my life. I've got no interest in it now. For some folks from secular backgrounds, Wes is the most traditionally religious place that they've ever been. (laughs) And so there's a, a learning there. And then, of course, there are some of us who haven't let go exactly or who have let go with a sense of reclamation buried deep within it. It differs for different traditions, I think. Lots of folks at West consider themselves to be either secular Jews or cultural Jews, people for whom their Jewish identity feels alive and vibrant just maybe different from how it was when they were a child. And then there are folks who, who are, would describe themselves as Christian, but in a different way than they used to be. I think in many ways Catholicism acts as a cultural marker in a similar way to Judaism, for folks, excuse me, as this gnat attacks me, um, The way we hang on to, we reclaim and reintegrate those parts of ourselves. Because there, I think, is the difference between just leaving and really letting go. There's there's an element of, of forgiveness and an ability to move forward with a reintegration of self, you know. When we're really ready to let go, like that little yellow leaf eventually was, we can choose what we bring with us, what we retain. We can choose even to be, to be bi-religious, multi-religious, to have layers to our identity. I was in a conversation recently, a class um, uh, about ethical culture, big ideas, with a few members, and we were talking about, about that idea, about whether ethical culture was an exclusive kind of tradition. So I went back and, and looked at some of the, the history. You know, ethical culture was started, right, in 1876 by a guy named Felix Adler, and, um, and it, it met on Sundays initially, um, 
and, and continue to. And people will often ask me why that is. Like, why, why Sundays? Why not another day of the week? If they were starting everything new with new language and new ideas, why pick Sunday? Well, they met on Sundays because the first members of the Ethical Society were also members of Felix Adler's father's synagogue. His father was a rabbi in the largest reform synagogue in New York. And so, of course, when you start something new, you bring along the people that know you and care about you. And so they met on Sundays at the Ethical Society because the first members were busy on Saturdays going to services at their synagogue. It's interesting, right from the start, ethical culture seemed to offer a way to be somehow both, to explore a multi-layered identity. Of course, there's a, a big question in there, right, about whether ethical culture even counts as a religion. We actually had that uh, that uh, conversation with the Supreme Court uh, a number of years ago. Some of you know that story. Um, there was a, a Wes was being challenged as a nonprofit, as, a, as being taxes exempt on the idea that it didn't count as a religion. And so, um, as the story goes, in the courtroom, people were bringing in our defense sort of these, these books of all of the religious traditions around the world that didn't necessarily have God at their center, books around Buddhism and Confucianism and Taoism. And we won that case. It's actually one of the landmark cases. So I do always like to say, especially when I'm being recorded, for posterity that for tax purposes, Wes is definitively a religious tradition. (laughs) So we've all got that, right? (laughs) Say it back to me. But I think beyond tax purposes, which really aren't usually uh, aligned with the deepest callings of our own hearts and souls, (laughs) beyond tax purposes, there's that question you know, whether ethical culture counts as a religion. Is it really a religion, or is it somehow something else? I'm sure there is more than one answer in this room. I know there is, in fact. (laughs) Adler, Felix Adler, who founded Ethical Culture, Adler gave this uh, answer when he was asked that question. He said, well... It's a religion for people who want it to be a religion. And it's a philosophy for people who are looking for a philosophy instead. (laughs) He gave a nice both and for us. In that class recently, a member said that to her, ethical culture seemed kind of like Buddhism, non-conflictive, a way of life, a way of being in the world. And I think there's something to that, in fact. In the founding address around ethical culture, one of the things that Adler talked about was wanting to create a space that was big enough and broad enough for everyone. He said, this is that platform. He didn't mean platform address quite yet. He sort of more meant platform space, right? That platform broad enough for worshiper and infidel, It's quite a phrase, isn't it? Worshipper and infidel. I've got a deep voice and a beard when I say it. He was trying to create a space where people who believed very different things from all kinds of different backgrounds could work together. In fact, that was a real impetus for him to create ethical culture. 
He saw that people from different religious traditions were divided by them rather than uniting together. And he wanted to create something different, some new space. Right in there, I think, you can see the possibility that we come into this place multi-layered. Multi-layered people. It makes sense, really, we are multi-layered in so many of our identities. We're never just one thing or another, or rarely. So often we carry all of these pieces of ourselves, pieces of our history, pieces of our family and who we were, and all together they make up who we are now. That plus all that we will become, which we can't even yet imagine. I think in some ways that's never more true than with our religious identities. Even when we have made what feels like a clean break, (laughs) there's always these trailing parts of ourselves. December brings them up for many of us. How do we deal with the holidays when we've made a break from all that that was? A couple of years ago, I used a metaphor in a a platform. I did a platform called the Holidays with Integrity or something like that, sort of about how ethical culturists and humanists in general could approach the holidays. And um, and I used a metaphor that I think was helpful to folks. I liked it anyway, and so I'll repeat it again. It it was the idea of, of imagining which of the holidays we want to reclaim as our own, which ones are ours that we reimagine and, um, and reinvigorate, that we, that we use our own language for? And at which of the holidays are we really a guest? We might be a guest at our family's table, but for some of them we feel that we, that we show up and can let the holiday be fully its own piece, its own thing. We're welcome there as a guest. And then in others, we might choose to integrate and reintegrate, to rename and relanguage so that we can own the holiday for ourselves. I think that's the case, actually, for our religious backgrounds writ large. Which are the parts of ourselves that we rename and reintegrate, understand as deeply part of our identity? And which are the parts of ourselves that are part of our history? Something that was and is no more. I said I would come back to a more nuanced version of my own story. As I said, I never really did that rebellion thing out of my religious tradition the way you're supposed to in college. Although, frankly, the fact that I was preparing for seminary was kind of a rebellion to my mostly secular-minded parents. I'll never forget, I was in seminary taking a class called Corporate Worship, which is about um, the, the body gathered together on a Sunday, sort of how to do that well. And I told my father my class schedule, and... Um, I think he really was hopeful that it meant I was looking into business. (laughs) He just, he didn't, you know, oh, that would be like if you, like you could be like an ethical advisor at a business. It's not. Oh, sorry, Dad. That was my rebellion. 
But of course, as many of you know, that religion that I was raised in was Unitarian Universalism. And then I came looking for my first settlement, a Unitarian Universalist congregation somewhere on the East Coast. All up and down I looked and found instead Wes right in my backyard. I was living in D.C. at the time, but I hadn't actually heard of Wes. I knew nothing about ethical culture. I looked it up quickly. Luckily, the Wikipedia entry was really accurate. And, um, and I got to know more over the months that followed as I, as I met more with the committee that was looking for someone to come here. But I will always remember two people came to my, uh, to my apartment, actually, to offer the, the invitation to offer me to come here to be the senior leader. And they came with a letter because West people are nothing if not thoughtful, well-prepared, and um, deeply articulate in their words. So they gave me this beautiful letter and sat down with me while I read it. And I remember one of the phrases in the letter, which was that they hoped I would come to love ethical culture as much as they did. They knew that it wasn't my tradition yet. They knew that I was raised in something else and fellowshipped and ordained in a different tradition. And so they said, we know you won't feel that way right away, but we hope you come to love ethical culture as much as we do. That was, uh, oh, what do you think? K.O. came to my door that day seven and a half years ago. (laughs) And I have... And I think so often about that phrase, about the coming to love over time, and how important that is for all of us as we go through that lifelong process of letting go and then holding on and reintegrating and coming to love what is new in our lives. It's not instant, I think, even when, when folks come through the door and say to me, this is perfect, I've been looking for this community for years, I didn't know you were here. I know that still there will be a process yet to come of letting go and integration and falling in love over years I think a lot about, about that religious background piece, about the many backgrounds we have when we do interfaith work here. Because I think our religious backgrounds so often influence our ability to do that work. Sometimes it's in a, a really rich way. Sometimes people have come from a particular background, and so then when we do interfaith work with a community like that, they're able to get it. They know the language. They understand the passage being cited. They see the, the, the reason that we're here together on this same page. And sometimes it makes it harder, I think. Sometimes it's hard for West members to be present in that interfaith work because it reminds them of something that they left behind that didn't work for them anymore, something perhaps through which they'd really experienced pain. And I, I think that that's what makes the work even more important in some ways, that it's part, that interfaith work and the learning that we do through it is part of the healing that happens in this community, part of how we go through the process of letting go and reintegration 
and falling in love. I've been thinking about it a lot in the past few weeks during the Pope's visit and then all of the media hubbub around the Pope's visit and then and then he visited Kim Davis and he didn't visit Kim Davis and he meant to visit Kim Davis but he didn't mean to visit, you know, the back and forth with how exactly that, that meeting came to be. I thought about it because I experienced what perhaps some of you have as well. I really like this Pope. You know, I love what he says about poverty and income inequality, about the climate and environmentalism. Oh, he is talking my language. And then I was so disappointed. Now, I know that he and I are very far apart and will remain far apart on LGBTQ issues, on reproductive justice. But I kind of wanted to think he was really my Pope in more ways. And so I was so disappointed by the Kim Davis controversy. And of course, that continues to unfold. It seems now as though, in fact, he was sort of manipulated into meeting her, and we don't know exactly what happened, but the archbishop might be fired. And I don't know all the politics of the Vatican. This is not a platform about that. <laughs> what is interesting to me, though, is how for those of us, and I hear it from those of you who were raised Catholic or have family who are Catholic, my my husband's family is all Catholic. What's interesting to me is how much we want to love that Pope. How, How much I enjoy liking what he has to say. The way there's some piece of reintegration that is offered there. Now, I don't think that all of you who were raised Catholic are going to now become Catholic because you like parts of what this Pope says, right? But I think it offers a piece of healing, a piece of reintegration for some of us in some ways, even to see the places we can stand together when we do interfaith work together to see the places that we can be one family, even when we have made a choice to let go, that there's something there to hang on to, perhaps. Whether it is reintegration that faces you now, whether it is the falling in love that will come over years and years, whether it is healing and letting go fully and being able to move forward. My hope in this community is that we are a place where we are open to the conversation with each other, where we are present to each other in what we have let go of and what we have retained. That when someone says, I remember that prayer from my childhood and I still love it. That we're able to say, tell me about it. Let me listen to what it was. And that when another person says, there's no prayer anymore that works for me. I needed to make a clean break. We are able to say to each other, Tell me about it. How was it for you? 
that we are in this community a place where we help each other to let go just as much as we want to. To hold on to just exactly what we love and to stay together with each other through that journey.